Welcome to Lateral Conversations. My name is Thomas Mark. This is a podcast about the evolution of consciousness, psyche and culture. I speak here with people who have something important to contribute to the development of spirit and society. My guests are therefore artists, philosophers, academics or activists, people not only with great ideas, but also the willingness to put them into the world. By doing so, I hope to contribute to the evolution by finding and exploring ideas and finally providing them to you. There's nothing more powerful, Victor Hugo once said, than an idea whose time has come. And if such a time for an idea has come, we can only find out by talking about them. Let me say a word about podcasting and monetization. Podcasting in general is a relatively young medium and all those who have a podcast feel a little bit like the World West because the rules of how to monetize a podcast are not yet established. Nobody knows basically how to do it properly. Because the problem is this, internet content, so the widespread feeling, should be freely accessible. There are people who pay five bucks a day for coffee and a donut, but paying five bucks a month for two or four, even eight podcasts, and which are sometimes described as awesome or amazing, that triggers resistance. And even if this attitude also applies to myself, there is a problem. And this is this. A podcast is a lot of work. Preparation, correspondence, the podcast itself, the production and publication and advertising. All this takes up a lot of time. Time that can't be put elsewhere. As for me, I would like to do interviews more frequently and with better quality. But this is only possible with a financial efficient support system. The consensus of many podcasters today is that the future will show whether the medium itself goes more into the direction of YouTube, that is everything is basically free, or in the direction of Netflix, where you have to pay for all access. Generally, I would like to keep the podcast freely accessible, but for that I need your support. If you like the podcast, if you learn anything, you will find many options on the site to support it. You can click the buy me a coffee button, you can go to Patreon for a monthly subscription, or you can pay via PayPal a single amount. If you don't have any money, you can share the free podcast and the free episodes free on the net. But in any case, I hope you enjoy the interviews I have and you will get something out of it. Thank you for listening. The guest on this episode is Bonita Roy. Bonita Roy is an award-winning author, philosopher and insight guide. She is a life coach and founder of the Aldelore Insight Center. So in this episode we are talking mainly um, about complexity in, in context of development, about the stories of development and complexity, what complexity actually entails and what are the basic aspects or properties uh, of a say post-modern post consciousness, a second tier consciousness in, in um, terms of spiral dynamics. We also talk a, a lot about purpose and health and she was trying to elicit a general sense of what that kind of complexity which is experienced in that second tier state of consciousness, how that could feel and look like. My mind was 
blown. I was very happy with this conversation. I hope you will enjoy it too. So here we go. This is Bonnie Deroy. So welcome, Bonita. Um, thank you for joining me um, with this podcast and this episode. Um, I actually um, read a couple of years back, I've uh, read an article from you about uh, process view on integral theory. And then we exchanged some emails on the Metamodern Uh, Metamoderna uh, 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 news group and so and that was the instigating moment that I wanted to talk to you about how uh, this process view connects to say an, an integral or metamodern or post postmodern um, stage of consciousness and uh, more precisely how for example health is connected to the stage And in this regard, how much and, and in what way political biases still play a role on this um, post-postmodern stage. So that's, that, that was my initial um, impulse. So Yeah, process view, um, metamodernity, political, different political biases. I mean, it's interesting. I'm wondering what your questions will be. They sound like really uh, kind of uh, not conventional questions. So, so okay, so maybe we could uh, frame it like that. This is an exploration. I mean, we, we're quite ambitious to be talking about what's after uh, postmodernity what um what does second tier look like um and then you know if if that is the case then what does politics look like in that kind of new uh environment or milieu or something and um <clears throat> so I'm, if you ask, if we uh, if we start like that, I have a <laughs> I have a provocative thing I can throw in right away um, that uh, will make some distinctions because um, so that yeah, which is just about there's two ways to look at adult development and that is what the way we usually do along this spiral that's been uh, classified and categorized by many researchers. And um, there is some kind of logical, um, um, let's say, progression that gives us some view of what second tier would look like. But what if what we're actually looking for is not another rung on that ladder, but that second tier is actually a whole different type of ladder? Like to me, the whole real transformation is not adding another rung to that ladder, but saying that whole process, that whole process is itself obsolete now. And so, so for me, in what's post-modern um, or post-postmodern is, has different characteristics than what are on that that ladder so um, are you saying that this is a um, completely different kind of uh, complexity yes that we're looking for a different type of complexity for something about the human mind that is not been described by that ladder and i believe that that part of the that part of the human mind and we can look we can see it emerging here and there, getting traction, that's not described by that ladder, is the seed which will eventually grow in sophistication and be the new mind. And so there, that, that's a pretty provocative, it's different than like what's in, in the discourse usually. And one of the things that is um, similar to what you said is, for example, the current ladder is holarchical, transcend and conclude. And you use the term fractal. So that would be something different. I believe that, that the, the new ladder or the new ecosystem of minds or ecosystem of levels will be fractal, not linear and holarchical. You know, and this is a big 
difference. This is, this is a big difference. So we won't be looking at minds as on this developmental ladder. This seeding of the new mind will then expand types that will be fractal, like a fractal ecosystem of each other. So that was this first thing when I encountered your article on process view um, of the integral model. So the, the thing that I was thinking about was that the integral model itself, Agual and the stages, is itself a structuralist model. So and I and I wanted to know uh, in what way a post postmodern stage of consciousness is uh, necessarily related to a process view of observing things. So it's interesting when you mention the shift to um, are we progressing toward more process view from a structuralist view? Um, well, there's a you know there's a couple of different ways to slice that question. One is are certainly the uh, model, developmental model we have of human abilities is a structural model. Um, Suzanne Cook-Reuter, when she does her master's class in developmental psychology, she says, you know, this model is generated from an orange mindset. You know, it's a, it's a pretty classic, linear, progressive, scientific developmental mindset. And so first, one of the interesting things is what would development or human, you know, human potential look like from a different mindset or a different capacity? I mean, I, would, I think it would look more like a fractal kind of uh, constellation of minds um, instead of this linear ladder-ish progression of levels and stage. It would not be stage dependent, I don't think, as much as we think development is stage dependent in this older model. So one of the things to move to a process view is just to ask that question. You know, what if we, what if we use more of a process lens just to look at human potential? What do we see then? Right. So, so that's one thing. But um, I remember at the, I think it was ITC uh, 2013, the Integral Theory Conference, uh, the invitation was to guess what people would say in the future about this period in history, the way they called the postmodernism the linguistic turn. And I said, well, they're going to call it the process turn, that this was a very deep kind of uh, turning over of all our paradigms from more structural views to process views. And I think that there are, are some indication that people are thinking more in terms of process, but they're still doing that from what I would say a structural orientation. Right. And that's kind of hard to, that's kind of hard to I I explain, but you know, um, in that little paper that you talked about, I use a simple metaphor and the metaphor, is that if a structuralist and a process thinker are both asked to imagine three glasses of water, both the structuralist and the process thinker will agree that the glasses are the structure and the water is the process. So they both can talk about both process and structure. Yeah, and, I think, but, yeah. and I think today there are more people talking about the water. But what I say as a metaphor is that the structuralist is imagining three glasses of water. And so they have to figure out how do things touch? Because implicitly, from a structural per perspective orientation, you have these niches. But the process thinker is imagining three glasses submerged in a tank of water. And so yeah. now there's no longer any um, need to explain how things touch. We just need to make discernment on why things are more dense in certain areas and more open in other areas. But the whole, the unity of the field is already a given. There's right. no, there's no, and so you see this in like postmodernism, you know, they have this explosion of diversity of opinions, but then 
they have this this uh, uh, imperative to unify all the perspectives, right? So it's because they, they, there's a there's a subtle um, orientation of separation. So you're always chasing to try to unify all the perspectives. That's a, still a structuralist view, because a structuralist starts with separation, whereas a process view. Um, when you're swimming in diversity, there's, there's nothing to do about it because it's still all unified at some kind of core, unified at origin, and it grows more diverse over time. So these are kind of existential differences between a structuralist approach and a process approach. So now in your article on process view, you describe this perspective of process view as viewing the world not as composed of things but world as composed out of processes that means things are not viewed as discernible units but somehow the result are composed out of our experiences out of our notions what we can do with it so and so my question here is now when when system theory emerged with Postmodernity in the social sciences. I always um, understood them as being part of that linguistic turn. Um, but there's also something I would call the cognitive term. That is when when process view um, and autopoiesis is applied to consciousness itself. That is when you realize uh, how you internally construct construct um, your own experiences. So in in um, Do you see a relation to, to, um, between this and, and uh, second-tier consciousness? Yeah, I think, think the, you know, the postmodernists um, made a big deal or make a big deal about language and how language constructs reality and kind of got themselves into a pickle in the sense that um, there was some kind of skepticism about whether anything was actually real. Right. And from a process orientation, you're very comfortable with the constructed nature of reality and it doesn't seem weird. For example, um, my house is constructed, right? So at some point it stopped being a forest. The forest was turned into lumber. The lumber became a house. I'm not worried that where did the forest go? Was the forest actually there if it's now a house? And the constructed nature of reality in process terms is very similar. So that I have a perception and I have feeling and then there's the real world and work is being constantly being done to shape that into experience. And the fact that work is being done to construct experience is no weirder than the fact that that house is emerges from participation of the forest and then different construction and then um, um, work is being done. So, so constantly, there's constantly, in this case, um, a lot of the work is imaginative and curious interplay between us and the world and our perceptions and our cognitive. Right. So, so the postmodernists, because they hung too much on language, um, find out that there's something precarious about the world. It's very similar to the Eastern um, traditions. They hung too much on phenomenon and they deconstruct phenomenon down to emptiness, but phenomenon like language are already structures in the mind. And so the process philosophers say, no, experience is a holistic participation of things shaping each other and constructing um, worlds and events and relationships and that never that never stops and so right. uh it it's not that not that precarious to be a process philosopher and understand that reality is constructed so i think it was uh, levi brühl who said that uh, in pre-historic and pre-modern times so to say the the social world the social sphere and the the natural world they were somewhat disentangled with each other. So there were like social rituals 
which um, supposedly created direct results in the natural world and and only and fully with modernity the social world and the, the natural world uh, were disentangled so and what what i see with postmodernity is that the, that there is still a disentanglement from the social world and or the social sphere and the cognitive sphere um, and we see that in in notions like words are in itself hurtful you know it's like which is kind of absurd when you think about it because um, some words are hurtful to some people but not to other people or the the, the more general idea that consciousness is language so i i've, I've heard some postmodernists make that claim so so and i wonder in what way this cognitive sphere and the social sphere gets disentangled uh, with a step to a more post postmodern stage of development yeah you know it's interesting to to think back on what emerges originally and and what's entangled and disentangled now and um one of the things that um and i agree with you i think that the the social sphere and the and the nature uh natural world was embedded and then we ended up kind of leaving the na natural world behind and um certainly in postmodernism, our whole reality is dominated by the social sphere and it's tied up, like you said, into our perceptions and our cognitive abilities are all inside the language and the means and they can't get out. Um, um, but what is still not online, I would say, um, which is, is not, is counterintuitive, is that uh, we are still looking for um, humans to have individuated selves, you know, so that, so um, other people call it, Jordan Greenhall calls it sovereign selves. Um, but this notion of the individuated self, which is not the same as individualism and the narcissism you see in postmodernism, but can we, can we be people who, you know, stand on our own two feet that can self-regulate our own affective states that know the difference between what is world and what is me that have tune their instruments of perception so that we're highly geared to uh, having insights about the natural world. And these are faculties that come with individuation and it's quite rare to actually um, meet people who are um, close, let's say, to being fully individuated in our world. And I think that we don't pay enough attention to this aspect of let's call it uh, the new mind or second-tier consciousness, it doesn't really show up in the developmental models. But I think it, for me, it is one of the key, key shifts that we are uh, looking for. So you talk about this um, sovereign self. And it is my understanding that the discovery or the creation or the awareness of this sovereign self is deeply connected to second-tier consciousness or postmodern consciousness um, as well as psychological health and, and could you could you elaborate a little bit on that well I suspect that the developmentalists put that at third tier now because you know we we all are so happy to move so fast into second tier that yeah. they, what they describe only at third tier now I would say is the beginning of an individuated self um, um, but I would say yes. I I would say that in my own work, none of, no progress without individuation seems to make sense. Or is is that interesting to me? I think that it, it's just more complex thought forms or more complexity in service of what? I mean, there's there's something that the human spirit has to break out of, and then I think it's not easy to become individuated, but once that is happening, then I think the tasks at hand are not so complex. They're just, they're just doable now. You just see how to take action. You see that most of the time 
and effort you spent in the past was besides the point, let's say. The world is now reinvited and reimagined and reenchanted into your life. And your work is with the world, not with the infinite psychological structures that you've manufactured in your psyche. I mean, this is what the postmodernists deal with, like all these psychic structures that complexify and, as you said, they get hurt. And Okay, just let me just ask, how would you describe the sovereign self, the autonomous self? What, what are its characteristics? Yeah, so the first thing I want to do, and maybe we can come back to this, is say that, that, you know, we started talking about the process turn, and then we started talking about individuation. And I'm not sure that, that there's an overlap, but that started becoming curious to me. So we'll just put those as the two bookends that you've introduced. Um, um, in terms of individuation, so uh, the, the, I, I do a lot of teaching this. I would say that there are key, char there are key characteristics, there's key markers. And one of the key markers is um, the ability to regulate your own affects, okay? And so um, I don't want to get overboard in teaching here, but when we're first born, we can't regulate our own affects. You know, when we're in the mother's womb, her neurochemical system regulates our affects and lays down some developmental uh, markers for actually how we are born. And then when we're born, we can't, you know, we can't even provide for our own heat and, and food. So we need to enter into a dyadic relationship to regulate our own affects. Now, this is very important, but it sets up little structures called primary schema where the child sits as the child and then they depend upon the parents and then it gets complexified into victim and oppression. And when you're traumatized, that gets worse. So that's the normal thing. This, this is not escapable. We're born dependent and this is the existential condition. But years ago, the, the first encounter children had with uh, having to regulate their own affects is with their peer group. So you'd hang out with your peer group and you get into a fight and your peers don't help you regulate your affect. They're just yelling at you or bullying you a little or this or that. And this is a shock, but it, it's a shock to the system, but it's a very healthy shock. And one of the things we do in our postmodern society is we always have adult supervision and we're always constantly going in and sorting things out for kids. And so we infantilize ourselves because we are not able to allow people to become whole human beings. Yeah. So we're kind of going in the wrong direction here. Um, there's also things like affective tone. When a child falls down and gets hurt and they look at their mother, okay? So the mother, I'm using stereotypes for primary caregivers here. What that mother does will set the affective tone that child has when they get, when they fall down. Like, so the, the good mother says, oh, let's see. And they turns shock and fear into curiosity. But we don't do that anymore. We turn it into like drama. We're always, everybody's over dramatized. So we have this problem with, we are not creating people who can regulate their own affects. Now we go into social media and we expect social media to regulate our affects for ourselves. And we expect our partners to regulate our affects. And we go into social space and uh, um, this is a real challenge for coaches. I teach coaches. So if, I'm, if someone is in pain and I go in to help, if I really watch carefully, it's my affects that are dysregulated. I'm in need of quieting the pain that I'm sharing with you. And I run in and to help. So first I have to regulate my own affects. And only then can I help someone to be a whole human being. So one of the key markers of, um, uh, oh, and then the other thing that we rely on, um, even if we've gotten so we take care of our own 
affects, we rely on primary schemas. So we have these little voices in our heads and this and that. So we kind of reproduce like dyadic relationships to regulate our affects. So all of this has to be worked out to create an individuated human being. Um, the problem is, is that a lot of our therapies, a lot of our spiritual communities, and a lot of our developmental or human potential movements are confused about this, and they're actually disabling the ability for people to make, regulate their own affects. They, they've gotten things kind of confused about what it is to build a whole human being. Could you explain this? Where do you observe this? So, for example, in a certain community where someone's suffering and then everyone um, goes and tries to help them with their trauma, or uh, if, if in facilitation we constantly are down-regulating emotions. So if someone's really mad, oh, no, 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 you know, we help them, like, regulate that emotion. And, and, and this is, instead of learning how to allow what arises as a human condition in that space, It is the human condition. Let that person own and be and and face and witness themselves and and learn how to regulate their own affects. So, um, so part of the confusion is that a lot of the technologies, um, developmental technologies, are kind of confused about what that means. So, that's one key characteristic. And the second key characteristic of an individuated person is that their perceptual uh, faculties work. <laughs> It sounds so strange to say here we are as humans and we need to learn how to use our perception, but the sad truth is, is that when we are filled with emotion and self-doubt and, and internal talk, we actually don't use our eyes and our ears and our spatial acuity to figure out what's actually going on. We can walk by people who are suffering and never see it. We, we just move through life without any actual experience of the reality of things. And as a consequence, since we're so kind of locked, I call it locked-in syndrome, since our affects are so dysregulated and we actually don't use our perception, then we become targets for manipulation by, you know, hypernormal stimuli on social media, and then we're just connected like that all the time. So those two are key um, markers of an of a individuated human being. So there are two things I want to contribute to that. The first thing is that um, it's a... It's a thing that if you are becoming aware of your own cognitive autopoiesis, um, paradoxically, you become able to actually listen to somebody because you're not held hostage by your own unconscious storytelling and thoughts and stuff like that. And and by that, because of that, are able to actually listen what the what the other person has to say. And the other thing I wanted to, to add is that um, it's, a, it's an idea from narrative psychology that, um, that, you that you shape your subjective experience according to the narrative deep structures of your mind and that you can come be um, aware of these kind of deep structures and, and to to shift them in the way you want them to, that you're not, um, again, that you're not held hostage by your own unconscious narratives. Yeah, they're actually, I think, holistically entangled, right? Um, when, right. I, uh, when I teach about, um, I, I, I tell people 99% of awakening is getting, learning how to get rid of the story. And people don't like that because they think it's kind of trivial. But um, it's actually true for pain, just actual pain. So I've done a lot of experience. You know, I work with horses and um, like I got kicked and had a couple hundred stitches here, you know. And um, I'll tell people a story like, so at first 
at first I got kicked and the muscles blown out and I started going to shock. So my temperature was rising really high and I laid down in the snow just to make sure my body temperature went down. And then I had this mental image of the scene from this movie Deliverance where Burt Reynolds leg is thigh is stuck out of his leg. And I'm like, oh, that's not helpful. So I put that image aside because it would create panic and pain. And so once I controlled these stories not coming in, I go in and feel, and there's not a lot going on. I mean, literally, it's not like I'm so courageous I can inverse pain. There's actually not a lot of pain. And so pain is basically a certain configuration and sensations in your body plus a story. And you can practice this. You can go out in the snow and put your hands in really cold snow and then come in and put your hands in room temperature water. You know it's room temperature water and you'll feel the story come in. The story will come in, I'm gonna burn myself and you wanna go like this. But if you control the story, you'll feel it cycle in and cycle in. But if you control it, then you have a chance to feel what that actually feels like. And it doesn't feel like you think it feels like. So even at this fundamental concrete reality, the story is completely in control of right. what your perception is. Yeah, that, that reminds me of that famous rape allegation case in one of the U.S. universities a couple of years back where two students uh, were uh, texting uh, and, and um, f- were flirting and were drinking alcohol and, <clears throat> and had sex but six months after um, the the female student was talking with her counselor about this event and the um, counselor said wait 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 a minute um, that um, was rape because um, the the male student allegedly took advantage of the inebriated female student although he also was drunk and although they exchanged text emails and so the point was that she the female student developed the trauma because the the counselor provided the the the, the trauma narrative that the that that was in fact like rape so or not you know it's like um what i want to say is like the 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 narratives provide sometimes um the 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 context in which trauma can arise. Yeah, so that's another one of my pet peeves in how an example of how the technologies and the traditions and the communities that are really motivated to help, they they don't understand trauma. They don't understand um, what what it's what how it's entangled with story and false memories and they uh, tend to reify and and exacerbate the part that is the story and um, you know they don't want to hear that okay that the trauma itself actually doesn't usually hold a lot of energy and the reason why people don't want to be told that is because they want their stories to be big they want their traumas to be big this is a big part of their identity all of this is what we're talking about is a really big ask it's so infected into postmodernism. i'm not sure it gets disentangled in metamodernism um, but this is all in the domain of becoming individuated and this is just what has to be let go of um, not 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 to mention what is on the other side what is possible on the other side so let us dive just quickly into this so about the the stories of development and the stories of complexity because from a first tier perspective it seems that um, that 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 for example the spiral is a story it's a it's a functional story and it's a, it's a dominant story the story of development and it's a it's a story which has itself a history and you can you can trace it back through the um, development of psychology itself and even even in the mystical traditions but it's um it's as as wilbur would say it's a myth the myth of the given 
to con confuse the story with reality in a way. So because there's another story, there's the story of complexity. Um, could, could we talk about this a little bit? Yeah, so, I mean, these are, these are pretty big uh, critiques of developmental theory. And um, we, I do hear, you know, we want to acknowledge when and why they are useful. But um, you can adopt what is called a constraint model. And this is not complexity right away. I'm kind of dodging a more difficult question, but maybe we'll get to it. But you can adopt a constraint model in the sense that when you look at the, what drives development, right? What drives development is could be a vertical pull or it could be constraint model and the, it, can, it, it could be actually a taxonomy of what gets in the way. So here's this story, it's gotten in the, in the way of me individuating or becoming more complex in a more elegant way. And here's, so because I don't, I can't deal with it, I don't actually face the problems at this stage, then I'm gonna add constraints. And you could actually see the whole spiral as not a vertical pull, but the accumulation of constraints. And this is something I wrote about in a paper, talked about how Wilbur has an additive spirituality, Roy Bashkar has a constraint model. So his spirituality is deconstructive, you know, uh, subtract to this, subtract to that, subtract to that, subtract to that. And so you can actually see the developmental taxonomy from a constraint model as the growth of problematic distractions toward the real work. And um, so that's, that's one thing. And I think when we look at that, as you said, from um, each one of those levels is stories, um, the, what, what I see is that we have, to, we have to now look at two different definitions of complexity. So the, the model drives more and more complex stories. You know, there's double and triple loop, and now I'm looking at past, present, and future, and I'm looking at the past, presents, and futures of the past, presents, and futures, and it grows in this com complex relationship. And the question is, where does the complexity come from? Is it in the epistemology, or is it actually in the world that the person is occupying. And so there's a question of whether the developmental taxonomy is actually driving a false complexity because most of the complexity could be in the epistemology in the world. And so once you ask that question, I mean, this is the kinds of exploration I think the best developmentalists in the world should be interested in because they do understand how their models work. But what if we ask that question? Did the, you know, did the world all of a sudden get much more complex? And people will say, of course, because now I have to have smartphones. And the, yeah, but do you? Or is that the story you tell? And how can you cut through? And, and so then there's that kind of complexity. And then there's ontological complexity. And Arne Nass, the deep ecologist, said, you know, the most complex thing in the world, in the universe, is nature. But you don't feel like you're in Times Square with with Uber and this and that, you know, that's not that true complexity has this elegance and this grace and this at homeness and this intuitive the interface between the human and true complexity is an intuitive interface. It's not a cognitively complex epistemology. And so we need to start looking at that because I think that is really truly where the new mind is. Right. This other stuff is just more of the same. Yeah, it, it has a lot to do with perception itself and, and changing the way of how we uh, perceive things. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's where I, I do a lot of organizational work and, and I'll ask people one of the first questions in our survey, surveys is where does the complexity in your work come from? You know, what does Zappos do? You know, they don't sell, they, they don't make shoes, they don't sell shoes. What, like, what do they do? Like, where does the complexity come from, really? And um, I use the metaphor of, you know, moving from 
Ptolemy's explanation of the movements of the planets to Copernicus. You know, the move from the view of the Earth as the center to the sun. And I say, did the planets all of a sudden jump around in the sky and become simpler? No, all the complexity was in the mind that was explaining it. Say to CEOs, you know, there's a chance that almost all the complexity you're dealing with is in your mind. You know, this is not to disavow that. But uh, I'm sorry, but isn't that the maturation and individuation we are talking about here? Like, like the acknowledgement and integration of that kind of complexity. Um, and, and that would also be that what I'm referring to when I'm talking about the awareness of the autopoiesis of consciousness. But uh, I'm sorry, but isn't that the maturation and individuation we are talking about here? Like, like the acknowledgement and integration of that kind of complexity. Um, and, and that would also be that what I'm referring to when I'm talking about the awareness of the autopoiesis of consciousness. Yeah, and, and it does not get stuck in uh, structuralist views and perspectives on the story of development. It, takes, it doesn't take de development as, uh, as the myth of the given. Um, and, and, and I think personal health is a very important marker for, the, for that stage, for that integrated stage we are talking about. And, and even, even the question is valid, could you even be political biased on, on that integrated stage? Okay, so this is really cool territory. Um, all right, so while you were talking, the word development switched. So it switched from the term, this is a new, you know, develop, we, development to that way we say, oh, this is a new development. You know, when you say, oh, we have a new development, meaning something new has moved, right? So we no longer say, oh, here's a new development. We, we no longer put it in a taxonomy. So I think that's, that, that's one thing. But in terms of bias, this is, this is what I think happens um, in this new reality. I think the notion of bias, um, of course, we're gonna have hybrid minds, so sometimes we're at a lower level and we'll have bias, but if we could only have this new mind, I think the new mind is, okay, so let me back up. I think the move we're looking for, we do have something that we have a certain kind of mind today that is similar to the new mind, and that is not the rational judgment, faculty of rational judgment, but the faculty of aesthetic judgment. So when we see something beautiful, if I see a beautiful Monet, I can sit there and engage with it and have all kinds of amazing experiences. And then I go and see a Rembrandt, completely different tone, completely different um, methods. And I can have another kind of relationship with that. And I can make discernments between the two, but I don't have a mind that then wants to cap that and say, which one's better? That's the evaluative judgment of the rational mind. It right. wants to make this meta move and cap something, right? So I think the new mind has more power of discernment and, and, and intimate participation, but then leaves it as that at that. Because when you have this discernment, perceptual discernment and intimate participation, it will change you. But you no longer want to know, well, how? Now what I'm going to do, it just carries forward. It's just a new development. And I think that, so, so I might have bias in the sense that I prefer this. I just couldn't get into the colors of that one. So I might feel a gap between me and my ability to intimately participate with that. And I might notice that, but it's different than a bias. And the bias comes from the, the current mind See, the current mind cannot deal with diversity. Every time it sees a spectrum, it wants to have a whole, some kind of term to cover all of that. Whereas the perceptual 
an aesthetic judgment just makes discernments. Like you see this, oh, that's a really cool green and look how it plays with that one. And so you, you start making more discernment, but there's much less judgment, less, less bias. So I think that's a, a good way to, we already have that mind to, 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 to build on that. What comes to mind um, in regard of this principle, but, but on a way lower level, is um, when Willem Reich, this famous psychologist, talked about psychological or organotical health. And, and the standard example he gives is um, uh, when, when he went to the cinema. So he, he really didn't care what kind of movie was playing, but he could simply enjoy the, the experience independent of his own taste, like conditioned taste, so, so, so to speak. So he could find beauty in every artwork And, and phenomena without the need to, to activate that concrete operational mindset of, of judging things. Yeah. So um, one of the things I think is, well, it's coming online for me, and that is um, we are kind of locked into this mental model of complex adaptive systems. You know, when we look at complexity, I have to admit this took me a while to figure out myself because when we think of the move toward complexity, we quite often get trapped in this story of complex adaptive processes. And the reason why a yellow flag went up for me is because This mindset is one of the reasons why we continuously escalate complexity so that our markets are exponentially escalating. And, 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 and when we look at complex adaptive systems, for example, if I have, I'm gardening and I have insects and I want to go and spray the insects, right? Well, this first move is a problem. It's going to escalate complexity because the other side is adaptive too, right? So that's how I first started thinking about it. Like, how do we stop ourselves from that first move? And then release this kind of like escalating complexity in everything. And so that was the first thing I was thinking of. And then I started moving toward more of this Reikian thing. It's not sufficient just to not do that move. It's the opposite. You are gifted this new life into your garden. Why do I have that gift? Why is this life living in my garden? Why is this valuable? This is a whole reframe that I think is every surprise. You know, why has this movie been made by someone? Why is this a gift to humanity? Why did people bother to do this? Like you take everything as a gift. You take everything as charm. And I think you will start to realize things that we have no idea what's running around. And so every surprise is a sign of intelligence, not a sign that the system's gone wrong or the system's been perturbed or we're under threat. This, I think, is a huge new mind. This is, I think, the future of complexity science to welcome in the surprise. It's not a coincidence that that life has come into my garden. Well, <clears throat> that, that's indeed a complex thought, that's for sure. But, uh, but maybe we should start to, to define complexity. Um, do, do you have a definition of of complexity i notice i always have to cough when you ask the next more difficult question <laughs> um yeah um let, what are, let's try um what is complexity what is elegant complexity Well, well, one definition which comes to mind, more, more a structuralist definition, is that complexity means that uh, not every element could be connected with any, un uh, any other element. So that, that, that would be like one definition. 
Yeah, so for me, I would use the terms proximate, proximate and distal connectivity. So at a certain point, the connections or the potential connections are not really relevant to what you're talking about. But I agree with you that there's, um, I think complexity, um, is um, participation. So right now we are a complex system, but when we go back to our personal lives, we're not, con you know, that system doesn't exist, right? It emerges and it doesn't exist, but then there'll be traces of it and it and stuff like that. So I would say that complex systems are emergent um, through, um, by definition of participation. So, and then it just depends upon how relevant are all the parts. So the technology, of course, is relevant here and the internet, and so it's not just us as agents. And this has come together to produce this complexity here. And I think this remembering that they whack that, that, Complexity are patterns that emerge, they wax and wane. So this pattern is emerging now and it will have a rhythm where it dissipates. Um, so that's part of my definition. Yeah, that, that would be like a fractal microcosm of, of what, we are, what we were talking about earlier, um, namely the shift from, from a more developmental perspective to a more like to, to a perspective on complexity in general like like there are all these events you just mentioned like the internet and the way i was structuring uh, my day up to this point and you were structuring your day up to this point and then then allow this this complexity to emerge that's one and then that re the other another key in complexity is that the the, the causal structures are not um they're, they're certainly not pre-statable. They're perhaps retrospectively identifiable, but usually not. Um, they're everywhere and nowhere at the same time. So there's this funny aspect of causality inside truly complex uh, systems. So like, when did, when did this start? When did this meeting here start? I don't know, you know? Um, it's, it, it's, yeah, so there's something like that. The, the causal structures inside of complexity are um, numinous, we could say, or liminal or something, but they certainly are not um, local. Um. So, let, so let me ask, when we talk about embracing the complexity in relationship to, to the sovereign self and second-tier consciousness, it, it could be helpful to... to deeper understand what, what complexity actually is. I mean, it has something to do with our cognition and, and that which emerges, but, but what exactly is that? I mean, I, I, in my work, the complexity of the individual has three elements in it. And, and one element is the sovereignty or the autonomous aspect. And one element is the relationship aspect, the ability to connect and make connections. Right. And the third is the um, agency, the, the ability to enact um, and, and move and uh, act on your purpose. Um, and we can see that all human systems are a constant negotiation of those three elements of our, of our lived experience. And, um, and, and so I think in that sense, I mean, it's a little reductive, it is formulaic, but in that sense, it overlaps with traditional definitions of complexity that they're emergent, that complexity are patterns that emerge right. from elements that are, elements that are protocol-like, from simple, simple elements of, of process, that the protocols are not complex. Well, they're powerful and simple. Um. So, so let me just jump in here. You said something about purpose and the numinous. And we were talking about the sovereign self. And the sovereign self was uh, 
always part um, of the ancient wisdom traditions, but um, not, not in an integrated form understood as part of the psyche or the self but it was outwardly projected was it was an outwardly projected form like a, like a ghost or a spirit like the greek diamond or the roman genius for example that that were like symbols or markers for a higher or autonomous self and and the basic idea was that this uh, uh, um, daemon uh, or, or genius was a mediator between God and man or, or between the numinous and the gross world and, and that it provided us with certain talents and purposes to develop and to uh, reach that, that um, numinous enlightened state. So, and, and for me, um, this, this coding is always, this higher purpose is always part of of a second tier consciousness and and just because because it, it's um, part of, of the numinous we can't really understand what exactly it is yeah so the first place i want to go is that i believe that there is deep purposiveness woven into the universe at all different levels it's fractal. So even the electron has a purpose. It has to move within certain constraints and all life has certain purposiveness and molecules and tiling problems and crystals and the galaxies and all this movement is directional by certain by certain reasons we could say that that the, the directional because the, the direction is a purposiveness so instead of having one mind with a blueprint what we have are many many centers of agency that have certain amounts of purposiveness on all different levels right so this is completely uh, fractal and builds on itself. So the amount of complexity of purpose in the universe is, is, is enormous. But I think that the word numinous, perhaps when we said, I use the word numinous relating to the causal structure or the causal properties of a complex system. And I think that the word numinous is exactly that, that we have all this deep purposiveness, but how, what is the causal properties of the whole? I don't think that could be known, that's numinous, but that would then be what would be called the higher purpose. But it's not something that can be known, but, but it, it, it exercises some kind of causal directionality that is not owned by any one of the parts, it's causal directionality of the whole. It, so, to, so I would say that's what the numinous is. It's that which no part can hold, but all part, parts own in playing their part or doing And that larger direction, of course, also carries the parts also at a, at, a, at a different level. So I don't know what the causal structure of that would be or the causal properties, but I think that's why, you know, that level, spiritual level of inquiry is called causal level because it has that property. So, so in your estimation, that will also be uh, the property of the sovereign self? Um, it's the property of all agents at all levels. There is some purposiveness in all, you know, all entities or beings. And I think the sovereign self is able to um, enact more of, you know, spend more time and be more faithful, have greater fidelity toward its purpose than distracted by what is not aligned with it with its purpose now having said that i'm not into like you're born with a purpose and you have to find it i think this is also a processual at every moment you're you're, you're driven by purpose but what that 
thread is is only enacted well that's that's indeed a complex issue bonnie um i think we got it that was uh, an enlightened conversation my mind is officially blown so thank you very much for for doing this i think we did good yeah i think so too